This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, everybody? Jeff Kasuf here, as usual, on Kicking Back. Season one is in the books, as you know, if you've been following along. And season two, we're excited to bring you soon got more great guests coming up in the very near future so keep your eyes and ears here subscribe if you don't already so you don't miss a thing but this episode right here is a brief little bonus episode every time every january we are honored to be guests at the united soccer convention it's a highlight of the year each year and this year 2021 has been a continuation thus far of 2020, obviously, with everything going on, and everything's quite different. So we were on Podcast Row again. We were able to do that the first couple years that it existed at the United Soccer Coaches Convention, but this year, Podcast Row was digital, virtual, as was the entire convention, which is usually 10,000-plus coaches and executives and, and everybody under the sun from the soccer world converging in one place. It was supposed to be in Anaheim, this January, but uh, instead was in the, I guess, comfort of our own homes is uh, a tiring phrase at this point for some of you, but um, that's where it was, and it was virtual this year, so a little bit of a different setup, usually on Podcast Row in the past couple years, we would grab folks, grab guests as they walked by in the hall, set some things up, and bring you some interesting interviews. We still wanted to do that this year, but we took a little bit of a different approach rather than uh, full, full-blown full episodes with people who, um, you know, in, in our virtual world, we've kind of been doing that all year, the past year anyway. So what we did here was if you followed the convention, you probably... If you were part of the convention, I guess I should say, you probably were part of some of these sessions, some of these lectures, if you will. And if you didn't, we're going to give you a little snapshot of a few of them as they related to women's soccer or, uh, in some cases, uh, people who are heavily involved in women's soccer. So we've got a few interviews, basically mini podcasts strung, strung together to become a full pod here of kicking back a bonus episode, as I said. So uh, first up here, we have Dr. Colleen Hacker, who I'll introduce in a moment. We've also got David Copeland-Smith and Ashley Fontes-Comer, uh, who, uh, who, who are all exciting guests to have. And we'll kind of go, we'll transition between them a little bit in this episode, and I'll give you a brief background on each of them. And uh, we'll just talk about some of their work, some of what they presented at the convention, especially if you missed it. We'll, we'll get you caught up a little bit, and hopefully you enjoy this bonus episode. And as I said, season two coming soon, we'll get ramped back up uh, as soccer hopefully gets back started to some degree of normalcy in the very near future. So uh, here's this bonus episode of Kicking Back from the virtual digital United Soccer Coaches Convention podcast room. 
My first guest here on this episode is Dr. Colleen Hacker, who many of you probably know if you're following the sport. Honestly, if you're following sport well beyond soccer, she's worked in just about every sport um, in, in many professional international leagues. And she is a professor at Pacific Lutheran University out in Washington. And she's a certified mental performance consultant. She's been involved in six different Olympic Games, coaching staffs for the United States, involved in several Olympic gold medal teams for the U.S. women's soccer team, worked uh, with the U.S. women's soccer team uh, in a pair of World Cups, and worked with the dominant U.S. women's hockey program. Her bio is literally a a full page, uh, small font on uh, Microsoft Word, so uh, a a lot of great accomplishments, and uh, the core of it is uh, widely respected uh, in the mental coaching space, which is uh, something that I really want to dive into uh, with Dr. Hacker because it's a really interesting topic. I think it's one that over the past year or so during this pandemic has been highlighted. And and we talk about that a little bit. She says her word that she uses is exposed. Um, And we'll go into detail on that. But, you know, we heard a little bit, I think we heard a lot more from athletes, a lot more openness on mental health and the issues that they faced while playing in bubble environments or not playing at all or playing a game while worrying about contracting a potentially deadly virus. so that's the extreme and the here and now, obviously, but the mental side of the game is something that is dealt with even in, you know, quote unquote, normal times. And Dr. Hacker is somebody who has been doing this for decades uh, and coaching some of the most elite athletes. And uh, we hear about it with the U.S. women's team, the mentality. We hear about that so much and it can be a little bit cliche and hard to define. But uh, Dr. Hacker in her session, in her lecture, at the United Soccer Coaches Convention this year, went into detail about some of the science behind it, how do you actually coach mentality and mental toughness and the mental side of sport, how do you prepare for it, train it. I think training it is the the big thing that she really touched on. So uh, about an hour plus of, of content there from her lecture, She and I spoke for about 20 minutes and kind of a a high level view of it to bring it to you. Um, So could, you know, a a lot more we could talk about here, but I think still a a really valuable conversation here um, about the mental side of sport and obviously hyper specifically here and and a lot of her background that she was involved in through the successes of uh, the U.S. women's national soccer team. So Without further ado, the first part of this special pod, Dr. Colleen Hacker on the mental side of sport. What, what's the most important thing? There's a lot to unpack. So I, I've got the extract the lesson. Um, I don't know if phrase is the term, but, you know, concept. Yes, it, is. it um, is. Is that kind of a good place to start, you think? Yeah, I think from the session that Anson and I did today and and just to, to, to provide some framework to it, here's Anson Dorrance, you know, original World Cup, first star, uh, first star on the, on the clothing, national team coach that I really credit with establishing this culture of USA mentality. 22 Division I national championships. And then our collaboration, uh, I spent 12 years with the U.S. women's national team on the coaching staff, 
multiple World Cups, multiple Olympic Games, and was also fortunate to work with U16 national teams to U23 national teams at the time. So I just, I share that perspective to say, you know, there's a lot of soccer history in that collaboration, and there's a lot of circuit, uh, soccer uh, personnel uh, as part of that. You know, I, I was uh, on the U16 national team staff when Abby Wambach was a U16 player, for an example. So it's a lot of, a lot of U.S. history. All right, so to answer your question, you know, Ansa and I, in one way or another, are asked some variation of this question all the time. You know, are mentally tough athletes born or are they made? You know, and so we said, th this is something that we get asked so frequently, let's, let's hit this head on. So if I distilled an hour of our talk into two nuggets, which is always challenging, but to do that, I would say two things. Number one, just like each of us is born with more or less of a variety of characteristics, not all of us are equally strong at birth. Not all of us are equally skilled with a soccer ball at birth. Not all of us are equally adept at the English language at birth. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's cognitive, psychomotor, affective. We're born with higher or lower, greater or lesser amounts. But mental toughness can be developed. It can be taught, it can be enhanced, it can be developed, provided you know what you're doing, what mental toughness is and how to bring that about. So regardless of the starting line, and each of us come from a different starting line, all of us, just like our technical abilities, our tactical abilities and our physiological capabilities, all of us can develop our mental toughness. And you're so right, uh, to, if you're going to pull out two elements from, from our collaborative talk today, the second would be that, is that, that people, meaning coaches, well-meaning parents, you know, supporters of the game, staff, are really good at telling athletes what they want. You know, you need to be focused. You need to be mentally tough. Don't let it bother you. Well, no kidding, Sherlock. I mean, we all, we all know that right? When I'm golfing and I golf badly and it veers off hard to the right on three holes down, uh, you know, saying you need to hit it straight isn't overly helpful to you at that point. What matters? How? How? So we're, so what we try to do today is connect those dots, is to talk about what mental toughness is what are the, what I call mental toughness moments, mental toughness moments, and you have to recognize them as mental toughness moments. So the first step is recognition, right? And we teach all kinds of recognition. We're taught to recognize how many they're playing in the back. We're taught to recognize the shape of midfielders. We're taught to recognize the personality players. I can go on and on. We're taught to recognize whether you're right foot dominant or left foot dominant. It's amazing how much we teach players what to recognize, and then we don't know how or what to teach them how to recognize psychological skills. And then, finally, to your point, then what I tried to challenge coaches is uh, uh, doing, instead of looking at all these disparate moments, well, there was a mental toughness moment when you got injured. Great, thanks. Uh, 
There was a mental toughness moment when you went from a starter to a reserve. Yeah, got it. There was a mental toughness moment when you made that big mistake in a critical game. Yeah, I recognize that fact. That's why I'm so bummed out right now. That instead of looking at these as separate, distinct, unrelated entities, connect the dots just like we do with tactical, technical, and physiological capabilities. So there's a series of questions that I challenge coaches to ask their athletes to help them see the connection between what occurred and their capability to grow from it, to learn from it, and then to envelop that, to apply that to future mental toughness moments so that for their entirety of their career, they're not facing one-off mental toughness moments and then another mental toughness moment and failing to extract the relevant lesson, the common thread throughout, which is self-awareness, self-control. And the number of times that I repeat that to the elite athletes that I work with, and, and when, we're, when we're doing our one-on-one -on -one work as, as a mental skills coach and elite athlete, self-awareness, right, self-regulation. You have to be aware of it before, before you can regulate it. Yeah, and the mental toughness side, maybe mentality in a word, is something that gets referenced a lot for the U.S. Women's National Team. Uh, you know, we hear it almost to the point of, of it being cliche from European teams or, or anybody abroad who says the U.S. mentality. And it's obviously prevailed uh, in four World Cups now. And, you know, I, I liked in the session you said this is actually scientific because there are things which you just alluded to for me that can be, um, they feel sort of hypothetical, right? And, and then they get frustrating because it's like, well, how do you actually define that? So I'm wondering from your perspective, having been in that national team picture, being very familiar with it, is, I don't want to boil this down too simply, but the difference between that great athlete and elite or world-class winner even, do you feel when you get to that level of the 1% of the 1%, they have the physical attributes, is it that ability or is part of it that ability to deal mentally? Absolutely, 100%. And and if you know anything about my work, you know that I moved beyond, I have, you know, 40 years of experience in elite sport. I've worked at the highest levels in a variety of sports. So I have experience, I have opinions, but I ground my recommendations and my comments in science, in research. And, and it's one of my cautions for a lot of folks is we hear from people of notoriety, we hear from famous people and they tell us truthfully, right? That's what great interviews are about. Tell us about X, Y, or Z. And then we hear this famous person tell us, but all that they have is the experience of their life. So it's very limited and it's very personal and it's very individual. So when these 300 other athletes who don't share those characteristics or background or experience or support system or talent base, try to apply those lessons, it, it breaks down. And what science does, it looks at large numbers of people across disciplines, across ages, et cetera. So yes, we know, and this, this work comes from Gould, uh, Dr. Dan Gould at Michigan State University and, and uh, others, but he looked at 20 years, not just in your lifetime, 20 years or your career, 20 years of Olympic champions, 
if you're an Olympian, even if you're a lousy Olympian, you're pretty darn good at your sport, right? So we're talking about Olympic champions and the two characteristics that separated them from an average Olympian. What I might sound like an oxymoron, but when you're at the Olympic games, there's a big difference between gold, silver, bronze and your participation certificate. And it was mental toughness and intrinsic motivation. So this isn't just my opinion that the psychological skills are the differentiator. The research over 20 years shows us that the more we can positively impact intrinsic motivation, players want to, put, putting it simply, intrinsic motivations is want to rather than have to. And mental toughness, right? The whole focus of our talk today at the, at the United Soccer Convention are the differentiating factors. So I've really spent uh, you know, significant number of years of my professional career studying mental toughness, what it is, how do we lead athletes describe it? What are the elements that, that um, unite disparate gender sports levels? What are they telling us are the elements of mental toughness? And then how do we coach it? How do we bring it about? And, and I'm, again, I'm just so amazed at how many parts of the game coaches don't leave the chance. Coaches would never say, look, I, I really need to see set pieces out there. And then I imagine hypothetically athletes going, I wonder if we'll be working on set pieces at all. No, nope, no, nope, I'm just going to tell you that I want to see it. So if we want to see it, we have to coach it. And we videotape it, we analyze it, we sit down with athletes and we practice it. We practice all these different variations. And then we just announce that we want mental toughness. And, we, and, and, here's, and here's some of the common soccer elements of mental toughness. We announce that you've just got to bounce back from, a, from injury right after you bounce back. Then we just announce that you have to handle like a professional being relegated. Yeah, you handle being relegated when this is your life and your passion. And I'm, I'm being facetious because athletes can't say that to us, but that's what they're thinking. If we're being honest, that's what they're feeling. So you have these common mental toughness moments that every coach realizes, right? Chronic or acute injury, a significant mistake in, in a game, just being buried by criticism, either by your teammate or by a coach, and how that can shrink confidence, a significant game mistake, critical moments in a match. When are those? Last couple minutes of a half, last couple minutes of a game, after a goal, set pieces, penalty kicks. You know, we know the critical elements. Elimination games. You know, it's like, it's, it, it's like some people have watched the movie Hoosiers just a few too many times. For those of you that know that, that movie where, you know, he measures the distance, this dramatic, you know, scene where he measures the distance between uh, it's a basketball movie uh, from the free throw line to the to the basket. It says just like in the state championships, yeah, the distance is the same, and all of everything else surrounding it is totally different. So what I try to challenge athletes is to understand sort of the truth in this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say it twice, so hopefully it sinks in, but. These mental toughness moments are exactly the same as any other moment and totally different. 
And you have to recognize what's the same and you have to have skills in place for what's totally different. And we had three World Cup champions, three gold medalists as part of our panel today talking about mental toughness moments. So Carla Overbeck, captain of our 96 and 99, 96 gold medal team, 99 World Cup team, talking about a mental toughness moment where one of her teammates made a critical error, an own goal against Germany in the semifinals of the World Cup, major world event, major mistake. What would happen to another player who wasn't mentally tough? They'd shrink, they'd need to be subbed out. And she talked about recognizing the mental toughness moment, right? Self-awareness, self-control, and knowing what to do about it. Then we heard from Heather O'Reilly talking about a devastating injury. I was actually on the bench when she fractured her leg, I think it was in the first minute of the game, it was down at the goal and Hayo's selling her body out like she, like she does, complete fracture. And so injury and coming back from that. Then later on, Hayo talked about being in the Olympic games, Olympic games and missing a sitter, a forward missing a sitter. You know, what would that do to a non-mentally tough goal scorer? Well, it's not my day today. Wow, I'm just not on today. Losing confidence, failing to take shots. And then to add to that, a senior veteran player on the team sort of comes at her. It wasn't like, oh, it's okay. We'll get him next time. I mean, she just bit into her. And he was like, I got this. I got this. You know, I might have liked that support, but I don't need that support to be mentally tough. And Hale comes back and scores the goal in that same game, right? And then Crystal Dunn being so gracious, sharing about being the last player cut in 2015 and recognizing that as a mental toughness moment. And she could have spent the next four years criticizing, complaining, finding fault, making excuses. Uh-uh. Crystal Dunn comes back in that next 12 months wins the golden boot in the NWSL, and then plays her way, works her way, earns her way, not just on the 2019 World Cup roster, but as a multiple game full-time starter and then eventual World Cup champion. So what we tried to show is here's what the research says, and then pair that with known demonstrated World Cup and Olympic champions going, yep, here's how it works, and here's how I did it. And then you'll see this marriage of science and application, this marriage of evidence and research with application in the game itself. And, and to me, that's, that's our sport at its best, that we move away, even though it's enjoyable, even though there's tremendous interest in human interest stories, athletes have spent their lives perfecting their craft, not studying the science. They shouldn't be studying the science, right? You don't want me on your soccer team, right? <laughs> you know, I didn't spend my time on the soccer field. I spent my time studying excellence and trying to make it applicable and usable. So this marriage of what I would say is the art and science is our sport at its best. 
And you brought up a couple of the examples that that were in the the presentation, and I was going to ask you for uh, maybe a couple examples of uh, of you seeing the mental toughness in action. But I think you know a few from one from each generation of sorts there, um, and and Brandy and and Carla, I think is probably that that quarterfinal one that I know everybody always says in '99 kind of gets overlooked in that journey. Um, so I think has recently got a little bit more uh, credit in terms of uh, that moment, you know, which came before obviously the big final uh, against China. But uh, maybe before we we go, um, obviously a lot we could talk about here. But uh, I'm wondering maybe in the moment that this is uh, the convention. This is the first. I think I've been going for. 12 years, maybe. Um, I think for everybody, this is the first digital one, right? And it's for a reason of, unfortunately, this this sort of ongoing pandemic. It seems like mental, this is not so much mental toughness, but the mental side of the game. Maybe it is mental toughness in a way, but um, this year has been a particular challenge for that. I think players have been um, more open and, and probably just asked about it more flat out this year. Um, anything that, that you would say, you've seen this year, um, maybe that will even apply going forward, but just given, you know, whether you're a pro, a youth player, whatever, you might've been training with you, a ball and a wall for the entirety of the year. You know, anything you've seen sort of shift um, in terms of a coaches, players, views of the mental side of the game, just the awareness of it even? Yeah, no question. I mean, I, for me, I think this global pandemic has exposed more, has revealed more than created. I think, and that's maybe one way where I might depart from other people's view on it. I think it's exposed. I think it's revealed. Meaning, intrinsically motivated players are, as you said, intrinsically motivated players are finding a way to stay sharp. And you so rightly say, it's, you need a ball. And, it, and if you're even more blessed, you have a wall and a ball. You know, it, you know, there's just so many ways, the toilet paper challenge of juggling or working on your side volley or what, you know, it's an old adage, but where there's a will, there's a way. And so the intrinsic motivation to creatively solve the problem, to find a way rather than find an excuse, I, I can only tell you, and again, this is from my experience, from an anecdotal standpoint, I've seen much fewer problems from the athletes themselves, whether it's from the youth to the, to the professional level. I've seen fewer problems for the athletes than the parents of the athletes. The parents seem to be wringing their heads. They don't know. How, I mean, this is just unprecedented. I'm sure my child's never going to be the same human being again. I mean, oh my gosh, the sky's falling. The kids are like, they're playing, they're finding a way. And, and you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go back a little bit because way before there was a global pandemic, I had the opportunity, in fact, at one of the national soccer conventions to speak to Pelé about this. And I'm saying that like it's some normal sentence. I mean, my hands were shaking and I'm like, I'm never washing this hand again. And I got a kiss on the cheek and I'm like, that's it. Never washing my face. I'm never washing my hand. It was, I have one of his signed jerseys. It was just this great moment in my life. I have never 
before, during, and hopefully after a global pandemic. I've never forgotten a, a part of that conversation. He said, every day, talking about as a young footballer, young soccer player, every day, I'd have to have a ball and a wall, 200 balls with my right foot, 200 balls with my left foot, five, seven yards away from the wall. And I had to have a perfect roll. And it had to be one touch. And if at 187, it rolled sideways or didn't come perfectly back, you know where this story is going to end, but I didn't at the time, I started over again with one. And the beauty of that, the simplicity of that, the standards of that, the intrinsic motivation of that. And then I contrast that to what many coaches experience with youth players. Like, yeah, I already know how to pass with the inside of my foot. Yeah, I already know how to pass with the outside of my foot. Do you have anything else? Is there any other drill? Can you do it 200 times? No, I can do it once. We're good here. I can do it once. If you really understand the power of that story, then you understand the contrast that I just presented is motivated, intrinsically motivated players have in fact found a way. And they've found a way in creative ways that they've never had to do before, but they've done now. And I think they're gonna be better for it. And then my final point is to just say amen to what you recognized. The other thing that's happened during COVID-19 is that people have recognized more than ever the importance of mentality, motivation, the psychology of sport. If you look at the convention, look at how many sessions, if you count, have to do in some way with psychology. Now, not all of them are being presented by people trained with that expertise, but they are being presented by people who've experienced the need for it. And, and I think just looking at the content of sessions tells you something about our recognition. And so athletes are being more vocal. They are being more aware. And they, more often than not, I'm not saying there, there aren't, right? There's a bell-shaped curve. It's not everybody, but a majority of them are finding a way. They really are. And I think we're gonna be, I'm not gonna be surprised, but I think many people are gonna be surprised at how quickly it comes back and how little we lost. And in some ways we might be better for it because we appreciate it more, we're hungrier for it, we recognize the gift that it is, we're more open uh, to the opportunities that we've had. They've always been there, they've always been there, but I think we're a little bit more open and receptive. A big thank you to Dr. Colleen Hacker for taking the time. She's very busy and, and appreciate her uh, adding on to some of what she presented at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. And we talked about the mental side of the game with her. And the other big trend, I would say, from 2020 and carrying into 2021, and part of this conversation that, that's up next is making it uh, not so much a trend or a fad, but an everyday piece of the, the training environment for soccer players was individual training. Uh, we all had to, or should have been, let's say, social distancing, uh, isolating at times, uh, generally not interacting with people uh, 
the way that we, we know to in, in any sort of normal way. And that applied to soccer leagues that shut down. And that's obviously not just a professional or even collegiate thing. That is every level of the game. And, and that, you know, in a volume that most affected youth soccer, youth sports. So next up here, speaking with David Copeland-Smith. We've had him on the main Equalizer podcast before. We had some great stories uh, from him about some of the players that he trains, which um, maybe the the sort of uh, claim to fame that some of you might know him for. Uh, he's trained, you know, many top players, you name them. Alex Morgan, one of them. Uh, Mallory Pugh, you'll see on his uh, social feeds of late. Uh, a lot of top U.S. women's national team players, Rachel Daly, uh, the England international Houston Dash forward. Christy Mewis, so a lot of players that you'll know, but also uh, trains many of youth players, many of up-and-coming potential national players down the line, and uh, also has the, the My Soccer Training app, which is uh, sort of uh, direct access to a lot of what he does for, for the everyday player. But spoke with him here about um, something that he presented on, again, at the convention this, this past week, but also you know, something that is his everyday job in life, and that's training individual players. What does that look like? How does it fit into a player's training regimen when they're on a team? And uh, it's a space that has existed for a while, as he explains, has uh, some doubters, some skeptics, but in 2020 and even into 2021 now, I really think that this is something that has been normalized a lot more, and it makes sense, right? I mean, you talk about Anybody around the world, top players, you hear about them kicking a ball against the wall, uh, finding anything that resembles a ball, creating a ball, juggling, working on their own to become better. And uh, at some, for some reason, that doesn't seem to be, I don't know if it's not as much the norm in the United States or we just don't hear about it as much. And I think it's, it's partly the, uh, the culture of how, how we train players and kids. Um, so, you know, again, something that he presented in an hour, he is doing this every day, could talk for hours and days about it, but kind of break down the high level here about what individual training is, isolation training, and what it means, where it fits into the game, and where we're headed in the future with that. So this is David Copeland-Smith, again, Beast Mode Soccer. You probably know him uh, best by Beast Mode Soccer. We, we talk about that here uh, from his social handles and uh, the Might Soccer Training app, which uh, you can also get um, to get an idea of what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about individual training. So here's that conversation from Podcast Row. David Copeland-Smith here joining me. Many of you on social media probably know him best for the original brand, the OG Beast Mode Soccer. Do, do you just get like random shout outs? We don't have a convention hall this year, but do people just um, yell out like, yo, Beast Mode? Yeah, that's that's uh, one of my highlights at the uh, in-person convention is it, just walking through anywhere in the convention, you hear Beast Mode, and you're like, who said that? You never know who said it, um, but I feel like a lot more people are learning that my name is actually David, so that's nice. But <laughs> you know, I, I'm humbled that people even know who I am. So, that's did you, did you coin Beast Mode before Marshawn Lynch? No, we had a whole lawsuit about it, um, <laughs> and his people basically, oh, basically. What happened was that 
we, because we got the trademark approved in 2011, and he and he's probably completely unaware that this even happens. Just lawyers, um, and his lawyers took exception to one of the trademarks, which was if we wanted to start our own clothing line of East Mode Soccer clothing line. So it wouldn't be Nike, it would you know, be our own branded. And that's the one that they took us to court for. And the panel agreed that the word soccer is not a big enough connotation for people to not think of Marshawn Lynch on a clothing brand, um, which I think shows how out of touch people are, right, honestly. Um, but uh, it is what it is. So you won't be seeing a B-Smoke soccer clothing brand coming in anytime soon. Well, there but you go. company-wise, we're good. We're fine. There you go. That's uh, I was like half joking about it, but that's that's an interesting nugget that you uh, yeah, had, to, had to fight that. Um, well, we're here at this digital convention, which is is different. Maybe people are yelling beast mode through their, their screen at you this time instead of in these uh, random hallways, which would have been in <laughs> but uh, you pre- you presented the other day earlier in the week on individual yeah. training and and you know wanted to talk to you a little bit about that in the year that was where uh, I know we texted a little bit about it talked a little bit about it last year at this point more people you're seeing actually how would you say it um, caring about crediting individual training yeah so it's funny right because there's always been this certain core group of soccer people that are very much against like training on your own and individual development um and there's always been like an us versus them um not so much on my side i'll just get on with doing what i'm doing um and obviously covid came around and, and i think it really highlighted the importance not only of training on your own but the improvements you can see as well um and my my my, my only concern is like, I hope that it's here to stay. You know, once this thing is over, fingers crossed, touch with it soon. Um, I hope clubs don't revert back to um, not caring as much. Um, you know, we, we did the session on creating a simple individual development plan that was really, really well received, um, which I was obviously more than happy about. Um, Basically, just I showed everyone and I gave them a PDF of what I do with players, um, and that's you know why we get results. And if you just follow that path, um, and obviously we've got our app, my soccer training, and that spiked during COVID. Um, and you know, I, I I'm an honest person, and I, I sent out emails to everyone who who got it, and I'm like, listen, this isn't a band aid, you know, like. You, you shouldn't be getting this just to think, right, I'll do this until COVID's over. You know, you should make it part of your training. It should be part of your periodization plans with your clubs. And that's where I'm hoping where it's going to go is that they'll start to, not just clubs, but like pro clubs, national teams, is that they see the benefit of it and keep using it. So what kind of feedback, it's a coaches convention that we're, we're sort of talking about and around here. What kind of feedback you get from coaches at this point after you show them, hey, you know, I'm training world-class players using this method and they're doing this? Um, again, it's like 50, well, it's not even 50-50, but it's like them and the ones who are into it. So 
you know, the, the pushback we get is you're not managing, you're not doing load management, you do too many reps, you'll injure players and, you know, the people who are for it right, will look at the results. And um, I always refer to, to Alex Morgan and like we've, over the course of the past 10 years, like we've discovered that her sweet spot in training session is 80 finishes. And if you're an SNC coach or performance coach, your jaws just hit the ground because that's too many, right? But it's not too many for her, right? So through trial and error, we've learned that this is where she performs at her best. Um, and that's basically for all of our players. We know how far we can push them and how they get results. Um, obviously, it... You know, with the players that I work with, the great thing about it is it kind of does have that wow factor to it. And, you know, all of the top players we work with, like the relationship we have is it's long term. Like Alex has been pretty much 10 years. Rach has been since she was at college. You know, I can go through Ali Long and, you know, O'Brien and all of the, the, the players. There's a long term thing going on. And, and I always say, you know, anybody can pay a player to be part of a video, right? And give that perception of success. But what have you done long-term? And if it didn't work, why would they keep coming back? I'm not paying anyone, right? The other, the other way, they're paying me. So why would, why would they keep coming back? So that's usually my rebuttal to, to push back. What have you seen from a, a youth perspective, a youth level of, um, have you seen progress from players? Have you, have players been surprised at their progress despite, you know, I'm assuming in many cases not training for a lot of the year. Yeah. I, I've got a few players here, like 16. And, you know, we, we've seen market, market improvement on a few of them because a few of them are doing like um, tournaments now, right? They go to Arizona. And one of them in particular, Grace, like from start of quarantine to now, I'm shocked of how much improvement. And I work with a few of her teammates as well. And I, they, they say the same thing, like in games, she's through the roof. So much more confident, wants the ball, beating players in the 1v1, distributing the ball really well. And because she planned the quarantine out, did the reps. And that's one thing with, with individual training that people don't get. It's a psychological effect of doing more. And a lot of players are like that. And, you know, we'll always, we'll always have that battle with, with, with other coaches. Does it work? But, yeah, it works. A lot of players with the psych part, they'll, they'll maybe do something they wouldn't have before because they've been practicing it for so long. So... The ones who commit to it, we've seen huge growth, huge growth. Mm -hmm. You mentioned individualized plans, but I'm wondering uh, that this is something I feel like I, I was watching Laura Harvey's session and, and they were uh, trying to pick her brain after she had presented formations. Well, what happens if you don't adapt and this and that? So what's, um, do you have, I feel like this is a question one of these coaches might ask you, like favorite drill, is that too general of a question without knowing the player? Um, yeah, like, honestly, Jeff, it's so, like, dynamic that, like, Rach is a nine, 
Alex is a nine, completely separate sessions, different sessions. You know, I'll have them train together and they still do different drills because what Rach needs to work on, Alex doesn't need to work on and vice versa. So I think that with, when it comes to individual development, it really is the focus is on the individual. Like you can do generic, 100%, but it's not gonna really work to you if everybody's doing the same things. Right? I've got favorite drills that I do with certain players Right, like me and Alex have got a finishing drill that I, I absolutely love. Right, it's all about a first touch into space, a little fake and finishing. Simple. Like, it's no, it's not rocket science. It's not secret drills. It's easy. Like, I'll stick them all on social media, um, and the same with Rach and Christy. Newest, we've got. I've got little dribbling drills that I've done with Christy. I I love them because they work well for her. You said uh, not a Band-Aid earlier, so what do you think, maybe hope, think is the future on this front of how players are training themselves individually? Yeah, I hope that players take it more seriously um, and they get hyper-focused on what they need to work on and they all use our app, mysoccer.com. <laughs> um, but that, that being said, like, that's how we, we design the app. To, to be around the individual so you're not getting told what to do you've still got to go in and set that session up because that's where it's well that's what it's all about is that individual and i really really hope that the clubs through all levels start putting it into periodization plans and they understand the importance of it yeah the self-accountability so yeah um I feel like we've seen a little bit more, you know, I, I think leading the way, you know, probably you and, and beast mode and well, beast mode slash my training. Right. And, and uh, what Yael is doing with Techni, um, you know, are two things that I think seem to have exploded from, you know, the past year, but, but have been building obviously. Right. So yeah, uh, it's good to see. Yeah, no, it's like, you know, the, the market Jeff is flooded with frauds. Because you know, all that's the other thing that I saw, like during quarantine, apparently, all of a sudden everyone's an individual training expert, and you know you see it on on social media, and it's like who, who do you listen to? Like these people have got thousands of followers. You listen to the people who are not making drills up. You listen to people who are out there every day working with players of all ranges, getting results with players of all ranges, so they know what's working now. And if you're not that person, then you're just making drills up and throwing them out there. Then what I call soccer entertainment videos, because I love watching them. But the ones with a treadmill man, oh, please stop. What's that? Have you not seen that one where they're like dribbling a ball on a treadmill? <laughs> Uh, like someone's like throwing cones on the treadmill and you're just like, oh, oh okay, this, is, gotcha. this is a major injury in the, on the, on the, about to happen. But yeah, it's, you know, you just got to be careful who yeah. you listen to. You got to look into the background. And as I said, do they train people? No. Then why are we listening to them? You know, or is it all for show? Thank you again there to David Copeland-Smith. Check him out at Beast Mode Soccer and uh, the Mike Soccer training app, which he mentioned. Last one here from Podcast Row from the week for us is a chat with Ashley Fontes Comber. And if 
If you don't know her, you should. A lot of great work behind the scenes, uh, and I think always, you know, behind the scenes folks don't always get a lot of credit, but she is, uh, we're talking from Podcast Row at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. She is the Vice President of United Soccer Coaches on the Board of Directors, and the way that the governance structure works for that system means that she is next up in line for uh, presidency, which would make her president of the largest coaching associate soccer coaching association there is so um obviously someone that that you should get to know very soon if you don't already she's also involved in the girls academy which is uh, the new um, youth girls soccer league that essentially replaced the development academy upon uh, that shuttering in april of 2020 when u.s soccer shut that down and uh, you might know her as well from NWSL days. She's, she's also a former player, but um, NWSL days of uh, the uh, an executive with the Washington Spirit. So uh, speak with her here. She was on a panel at the beginning of this convention week, this convention year, uh, titled Dynamic Investment in Women's Soccer. It was a, a wide wide-ranging topic, that panel, uh, with a lot of great guests with different backgrounds of, of what sectors of the business they are in. So, you know, dynamic investment in different areas of the women's game. But uh, speak here with Ashley about uh, some of the more general investment areas of women's soccer, how she can and, and is uh, invested in those and working on those from her roles, plural, and, and what she sees as the future of investment in women's soccer. So, um, again, you know, a chat that if you listened in and watched from the convention, you got about an hour's worth of, of great conversation. And obviously it's one, um, you know, that, that will continue to, to be had. I've, I've been on different panels at different events, uh, moderated panels about investment in women's soccer. It's something that's growing. It still have, has a long way to go. But uh, on this, we'll kind of give you the, the thousand foot view of uh, investment in women's soccer from someone who's involved uh, really at, at several different levels in that. So um, here's the chat with myself and Ashley Fontes Comer. Another topic this week at the convention, uh, a big topic, I think yearly even, dynamic investment in women's football is, is a panel that you were on, Ashley. Um, what you know, that's a, that's a lot to bite off, right? Even 15 minutes chatting here or so an hour, even on that panel, you know, for you, I mean, where, where are we at and where are we going? I guess I'll give you that loaded question with a, a couple minutes to answer, I guess. But I mean, we, we, you know, people who tuned into the convention, they heard you talk about it. They heard the panel, but um, you know, for, for those maybe just listening in now, I mean, what, what do you think is kind of the high level of where we're at? Right. Yeah, no. Well, well thanks for having me on and, and chatting with me. Um, it is, it's a, it's a dangerously broad topic, right? I mean, you could spend not even hours, but like days and, and weeks on it. Um, but what we were trying to do with, with the session was just kind of highlight some optimism that's, that's going on in the women's game. There are so many people out there that are actively working to push things forward. And, and often, you know, we don't hear from you know, them a lot. It's usually the select same, you know, people, um, you hear from over and over again, which, you know, that's fine, but Hey, let's, let's show that there's a little more progress going on. Um, and there's, there's different ways to invest, right? So 
when we think of, of investments, it might be, we might automatically think of financial, but that's, that's not always the case, right? We, we really delved into talking about cultivating a culture. And I think that's an important piece of it. And so what, what elements go into that, right? You can start, um, you know, from coaching, the coaching culture. It's like, how, how do we get, you know, the age old question is, uh, how do we retain and get females to coach? Well, that might be, that might start when they're young as a youth player. If they don't have a good experience playing the game, why are they going to want to stay in it? Right. They're not going to want to coach. So, um, creating some exposure opportunities. So look again, cultivating culture. Is that through coaching? Is it through uh, giving them access to be able to watch women's football? You know, uh, the shame of it is right now, the NWSL, there's so few teams out there. You can't just expect to be in a, a large market area and say, hey, go watch a game. Because, I mean, I think, I don't know how you feel, but it is, there's a stark difference for when you watch a game on TV and as opposed to when you go to a game, especially the women's games, because the, you know, some of the stadiums are smaller and you have that real intimate setting and it is one heck of an experience. Um, so that's, that's a little piece of it, you know, uh, out of football is, is doing a tremendous job actually giving us that, that visibility of putting the games on TV, which is phenomenal. And then, you know, another little piece, a, a gem that's out there is, um, you know, Angel City FC. It's phenomenal. So we, we kind of touched on a little you know, a few different points, but there's just so many people actively working grinding away out there and, and trying to cultivate this culture and really push the, the women's game forward. So it was a broad, broad topic, gave you a broad general answer, but <laughs> hopefully it gets us someplace. Well, well, maybe we can be, uh, we can drill down a little bit. I mean, you, you touched on a few of those things just now, but um, I read your intro there before, but you know, you've worked inside the NWSL, you're working at, you know, in the, the sort of high level youth space. Um, you're working at, at a, I guess a high level general space with United soccer coaches, which encompasses just about everything. And, and, you know, for folks listening, um, you know, on pace to be a future president very soon, the way that the sort of a track of, of board members works. So, um, you know, what's something maybe for you that's priority if we were talking more specifically about, um, I think you're right every year at a convention, there's the topic of women in coaching and, investment in them is, is that maybe a priority maybe a natural one is there something specific that's on your mind that you know you want to see that whether it gets done in your time on the board and presidency or, or it's a longer term thing is there something on your mind there right I think um, it, it's tough to answer I think you know my my role as a board member is to serve and that has to that has to be to serve the association as a whole so even though I might have, you know, particular topics that I'm vested in, I can't, you know, silo my efforts and make it my own agenda, right? It's, it's not the, the Ashley, Ashley world. It's, uh, you know, gotta, gotta serve and try to, um, try to help push the association forward and listen to the, the coaches and what their needs are, what they like, where, where's the landscape going um, for resources and education that they need. Um, so that that I'll just keep continue following on our strategic plan for United Soccer Coaches and, you know, and do my duty to serve there when I'm president. Um, I think at a, I'm kind of always looking at a, a higher level. Look, the the game is fragmented. 
right? And we we haven't figured it out on the the women's side. Um, we know we've clearly everybody in the world has has the the answer to or no, they don't have the answer, but they they have the list of problems, right? But we need to create solutions. So I think for me, what I continually try to do is just make connections so that can we bring that fragmented landscape together? Can we start working together? Can we connect that the youth side of the game and everything it encompasses to the professional, to the collegiate, to the international game? Um, and how do we start having those conversations? So it's it's a cultural yes that we're we're trying to implement here in the US, but how do we connect it globally? It's it's a game for everybody and that's every level. So often when we talk about it too, we're, we're just talking about the top level. It's, it's not the top level. It's that's such a small fragment or percentage of the population. We're talking about fans and we're talking about kids that want to play rec, adults that want to play rec of every ability of every race, gender, ethnicity, um, any kind of population segment. It, it's soccer, soccer for all. So it's, it's trying to work within the different industry populations of those segments and make those connections so we can we can really try to figure out how to um, put some solutions to the problems that we we all know so well and love to complain about. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be, uh, I guess, life or, or certainly a convention without finding something to complain about. So, um, <laughs> well, I, I think the investment side though, you know, you touch on a little bit of, of pathways, um, you know, th there's some talk at that high level granted of pathways to the pro, the NWSL. Um, so I, I think that's that's one level of kind of investment and, and you're involved as well in the Girls Academy, which I think um, on this pod, this is kind of a special edition for the convention, but um, you know, usually kind of an hour long chat. And, and I had Leslie Galmore on recently to talk Girls Academy. And I think, you know, even since that episode we did a couple months back, the news of the MLS partnership and um, some, some different exciting things. So, you know, that's a level I'm sure too, that you're, you're quite interested in and invested in is um, the pathway for young women's players, whether that's maybe to pro or, or maybe for a bigger population to college. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the girls Academy, it's for me personally, it's exciting, right? We, that that day of April 15th, right? It was almost a blessing in disguise because it gave us, and for those that don't know, that's when, you know, the, it was the academy boys and girls side was just dropped out of nowhere. Um, it was unfortunate, but for the girls, we were left to our own devices, right? It was, what do we do? And that's been the problem, right? With with girls' sports across the board or women's sports, it's all right, who's gonna help us? We need this or we need support, or um, or that's just how it's it's perceived as a cause. And that's part of the problem. So with the girls academy, that's what's really exciting. It's we're not asking for help. <laughs> we we don't um, need it. We welcome allies, right? We welcome the people and institutions and in organizations that are on board with, with our beliefs and core values of women are, are able, capable, formidable forces. And in the, the youth game, um, now we have an opportunity to kind of reimagine, well, what does that look like? Because what have we, I mean, 
left out of the picture for so long. And that's the player's voice, right? If we, if we truly want to, again, kind of, you know, merge this fragmented, you know, uh, all these problems that we have and, and create some solutions, it's pipeline of, of women leadership. And how do we do that? Well, why don't we give these players opportunities sooner? They, they shouldn't be robots, right? They like, where's their voice? How, how do we help them engage their voice and, and take ownership and accountability of their own journey in this league? Um, so we've created initiatives for them to be able to do that. And I, I think that's going to be tremendously helpful in moving the game forward, the youth landscape, and then even connecting it um, to the pro game. Because by the time they get there, they should have demands, you know, hopefully demands on well, what should their contract look like? How should they fight for this? How do they advocate for themselves? How do they know their worth? Um, and then they'll have allies in the game. Like the fact that we were able to, to partner with, with MLS was huge. Um, they believe in what we're doing, you know, and, and they see it as a, a monumental opportunity to not support us, but say, Hey, look, this is, this is great for the game, the, the direction that we're trying to take it and do things the right way for the right reasons. Um, something that doesn't happen too often, especially if you're in the youth game, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit of like Game of Thrones out there, but um, we, we too often forget that, hey, it's, the adults need to get out of the way and, and let these kids play and develop as people and as players on and off the pitch. Well, I wonder, I mean, have you gotten any, you must have, I'm sure, plenty of positive feedback, any kind of outside pushback at the idea of, you know, I'm sure there's somebody who's out there saying, 13 year old, 14 year old is making decisions for a whole league. I mean, not, not that that's a generalization, I guess, but is involved in, in said decisions and, you know, on a, on a player board. I mean, that, right. it wouldn't, it wouldn't be uh, soccer or youth soccer without some divisiveness, as you said. So, I mean, what's, I mean, right. what, what do you say to, to kind of folks who maybe are skeptical of the idea of um, players at such a young age taking control of, of what they're doing. I, I think it's great. I think that uh, I, I invite the skepticism so we can have the conversation, right? So a lot of the problem is the fact that we just like that, if the, the skeptic doesn't think that a 13 year old is capable of having an opinion or a voice, that's our problem right there, right? We don't, we don't recognize the, the capabilities that these kids have. Um, and we are subconsciously, you know, creating a barrier for, for their growth. So part of it, when, you know, we have this, this player led board at different levels and different ages, it's helping the coaches understand how to facilitate and inform and, and communicate. And then a lot, a lot, um, align with those players. So it's not necessarily, you don't have a 13 year old running around telling me what to do or saying, Hey, I'm going to boycott this or no, we don't want to sign that deal. It's like, okay, it's, it's not like that, but it's, it's having those conversations with them so they can, can become more informed with the process. Um, because then that's going to help them to de uh, develop those leadership abilities and kind of push them out of their own comfort zone. But again, know that, look, the only person that can limit you and your potential is you, right? 
not a coach, not, not this or that there, there are allies out there. There's resources out there. We're going to help expose those players to opportunities. And we're going to, you know, help the coaches understand that, you know, part of the process is being able to, to, you know, develop those relationships with their players and help them grow. So it's not, it's not for them to be robots. Well, you opened your panel, um, the panel you were on, I guess I should say with some quick fire uh, word association. So I guess maybe I'll, I'll end this chat with a, a similar idea playing off of that of just, you know, I, I think um, Carm Moscato had asked you all, everybody on the panel of, you know, what is your role and what do you see as the, I think it was maybe the future potential of investment in women's soccer, something to that, that tune. Um, what for you is, um, maybe removing even the, the United soccer coaches cap, the girls Academy cap fan of the women's game. Like I said, you've, you know, you've got experience in NWSL. Um, what for you is the opportunity in the women's game you're looking forward to the most, uh, maybe from investment or just growth perspective in the near future here. Gosh. Um, Putting on the fan cap, maybe even. Yeah, I think. I think sustainable growth um, is what I'm looking forward to because it, if we can get to a point where there's just more access to uh, actually going to a game to have that experience um, to where, you know, you, you're starting to replicate how it's been done on, um, you know, the men's side. I mean, the MLS has done a great job, um, but when you look at like and the NFL, MLB, um, NHL, I mean, these leagues have been around for several decades. NFL has been around for a hundred years, you know, um, professional sports leagues been around forever. So they've created like this nostalgia, right. For generations after generations of kids growing up and going to the game with their, with their parents or their grandparents, um, these cultures have been created, you know, in, in other countries, just not here yet on the women's side. So that is what I would be looking forward to most, because if we can do that, then look, we have better player standards. We actually have good pro contracts with money, um, hopefully better, you know, development system for, for youth players and we have fans, right? So um, that's sustainable growth to create access and, you know, embedded uh, generational ties to the game would be great. Well, I, I think we are just finally starting to see that, which is, uh, I, I tweeted this on draft night and it was, it, it was a joke that blew up, but Yaz Ryan, the Thorns draft pick, first round pick, told us on a media call right after she got picked that she grew up watching Lindsay Horan. And I was like, what? <laughs> right. But I, I mean, if you stop and think Haran's eight going on nine years pro and, you know, could, because she turned pro so early and now with players coming out of college, I mean, right. you know, technically uh, they were on the younger side at that point in 2012. So, um, right. so I think finally there is that little bit of NWSL yeah. coming into a decade now. So. Right. Yeah. We just need to get to like 30 teams, you know, <laughs> be more locations, um, more investors, more women's groups investing into the, you know, ownership would be, you know, a phenomenal piece to, to creating that picture. Well, 30 might be ambitious, but I, I don't know, maybe uh, <laughs> Lisa Baird, she didn't want to put a number on it recently when she's been asked. So maybe that's, uh, 
Um, yeah. I don't know. That'll spark the the pro rel crowd and second division and everything else. But um, yeah. well, cool. Thank decades on the road, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'll be fun. Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Jeff. Well, there's another great chat for you on this podcast row. I want to say thank you again to our guests, Dr. Colleen Hacker, David Copeland-Smith, and Ashley Fontes-Comber. Just a snippet, really, of what you got from the convention. If you're listening and you attended it virtually this year, uh, we didn't get to go to Anaheim. I think we kind of knew that was going to be the fate uh, as 2020 developed. But if you haven't been to a United Soccer Coaches convention, uh, for one, you would want to be member of United Soccer Coaches. Um, And obviously, if you're a coach, um, it's something I'd highly encourage. A lot of great, you know, the sessions are great. You'll learn a lot. But also, you know, I would say the networking for the sport at large, obviously coaches is the focus, but the sport at large with professional drafts there and some other things happening at at every convention, uh, the networking is, is unparalleled. It's really the one event each year where everybody from every sort of corner of the sport is in one place. So uh, in that sense, certainly a bummer to not be in Anaheim this year. 2022, January 2022, hopefully we are back to uh, events in person that we all feel safe about. That one is due to be in Kansas City, which certainly in the women's soccer world has been in the news recently. Kansas City is back in the National Women's Soccer League in a different form. So that'll be interesting to see, I would assume, another in-person NWSL draft in Kansas City where that team will uh, be relatively new still and probably have you know maybe just unveiled their permanent branding since the one they unveiled is temporary so looking forward to being an in-person podcast row in-person convention in 2022 hopefully but for now we're virtual as many things are if you didn't get to go to the virtual convention this year hopefully this little snapshot gave you a taste of of what there is honestly just scratching the surface here so many great sessions women's soccer men's soccer let's drop that and just call it soccer i mean it's it's applicable Uh, the sessions are applicable to all levels of the game Um, some different ones you know there's always great presenters and on the women's soccer side i think you know again emma hayes this year one of the best coaches in the world laura harvey as well uh, giving another session I, i think she's been She's, she's done a field session, or in this case, it was virtual for, for several straight years um, and has been a, a relatively frequent guest on the pod, I would say. I think the past two years we did podcast row, uh, Laura Harvey joined us. So hopefully we'll see you all in 2022. And this has been a special bonus episode of Kicking Back. If you don't subscribe, please go ahead and do that. I'm telling you, we have great episodes that we've already recorded from 2021 or 2020 excuse me 2021 is upcoming for season two and we'll have more of those great conversations with coaches players executives broadcasters folks from all across the world of women's soccer and i am sure that you will learn something and enjoy something from uh, what we have on deck if you go back into the archive so far so go ahead and subscribe and please rate and review that Apple review, give us those five stars, write something nice. It helps uh, people discover this podcast just like you because it is still relatively new and all those fun algorithms uh, helps us work to a place where people can discover it and they might not realize it exists, but it's something that they need. You didn't know, it's the thing you didn't know you needed is how it might go. So 
Thanks again. I'm Jeff Kasouf, and I'll be back soon with you all here on Kicking Back, which is brought to you by The Equalizer. Head to equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe, and you'll get everything that we do. We're kicking back, and I'll talk to you soon. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-800-941-2358 to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals. At RCA's state-of-the-art campuses, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs for patients with history of trauma or relapse, for young adults, for adults 50-plus, for LGBTQ patients who wish to seek treatment without worry of stigmas, a confidential program for first responders and military, and a faith-based program. Recovery Centers of America accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-800-941-2358. 800-941-2358.